Hello and welcome to Emotionally Speaking. This is Peter Leonard. He's Chief Executive of the Centre for Emotional Health. This is a new podcast about emotions, your emotions, how you relate to your emotional self and to other people. And this is Emotionally Speaking, a new podcast from the Centre for Emotional Health. In each episode, I invite a guest to talk about challenging moments in their life. We'll explore together what happened and how they found ways to cope. And my hope is that we'll gradually build up an emotional toolkit and that some of these tools and coping mechanisms might be helpful for us as well. A big part of our work at the Centre for Emotional Health is on building the capabilities of adults in the lives of children. And a book that we've used for years as part of our training is The Huge Bag of Worries. It tells the story of a young girl called Jenny who carries around this big bag of worries and how she learns to live with it and to deal with it. I think what's brilliant about it for me is that it reminds us adults that worries can be a big part of childhood. In fact, the story is relevant to anyone of any age. Nonsense, said the old lady firmly. There's nothing a worry hates more than being seen. If you have any worries, however small, the secret is to let them out slowly, one by one, and show them to someone else. They'll soon go away. The book's written by an amazing woman called Virginia Ironside, and so she seemed the obvious choice to come in and have a conversation with us. I'm so grateful for you to coming in doing this. Um, yes, it's really, good fun. Yeah. It's always good. nice to be asked for an opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm really thrilled to be joined today by Virginia Ironside. Virginia is a journalist, author and agony aunt. Her prolific career started as a music critic in the 1960s, interviewing the biggest stars of the decade like The Beatles, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. She's written several novels and children's books and has been an agony aunt for many years. She writes regularly for The Oldie and The Idler. Virginia, hello. Hello. It's so lovely to have you with us. It's really nice to meet you. Um, we're big fans of your writing at the Centre for Emotional Health, especially your children's book, The Huge Bag of Worries. Oh, thank you so much. That's, a bit, that's been an amazing hit. It's been in print for ages. It's one, I'm so thrilled about it. It's great. It's a really lovely book. What inspired you to write a book about anxiety for children? I was asked by the Scottish version of the NSPCC to write a booklet for all primary school leavers before they went to big school to encourage them to express their worries about going to big school. So I wrote this terminally boring, dreary thing. It was very dull. And then at, I was about to send it off, and at night, in the middle of the night, I thought of this other idea. It was so good, I thought, I know this is going to be a hit. And it was partly because it was so funny. The idea of this enormous bag that you hauled around that nobody else could see. I mean, it makes me smile even now. And if you can laugh at awful things, it makes them so much less horrible. And now, years and years later, it's been published in millions of different versions. It's brilliant. And it's, that's, it's kind of over 25 years ago, isn't it? I know. Isn't it's it amazing? amazing? And, it, and yet it still holds yes. you know, so much profound stuff in there. Um, yeah, of course, they desperately want me to write another one. But all their suggestions are 
absolutely ghastly. The, the little book of happiness. Well, no, that's not going to wash with me. Oh, no. no, no, absolutely. <laughs> I think I, we could we could almost do a whole podcast on how you can't get happiness into a little book, couldn't we? But we're going to be thinking about yes. emotional health. Mm. And we are an organisation that raises awareness of emotional health, working mm. with a whole range of, of different people. And so I was wondering, what does emotional health mean to you? I don't like the idea that there's a norm. All you can do emotionally is try to get by so that you're reasonably content and you don't make anybody else miserable. That's about it. But throughout one's life, one's always hurting other people and people are hurting you, and this is part of life. Yeah. And I think we all find our own paths and ways of doing it. Some people do it by charm, some people do it by spending a lot of money on other people. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but no. as long as it works for everyone. Yes. It isn't just a thing that no, you can manage on you your, your own. It's, it's about, not a tick box thing, no, yes or no. no. Yeah. Uh, and develops and changes oh, your all your life. life. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's why um, being an agony aunt now is firstly interesting because I'm writing for the oldie and therefore there are many different problems for old people and there used to be when I was working for a woman magazine and things like that. But also my attitudes change all the time and that's so interesting. I don't give the same answers as I used to. <laughs> that's, that's good, isn't it? I often say when people ask me a question, I say my first answer is not my my final answer. No, it's a very good phrase. <laughs> it's something about thinking mm. aloud, I think. Mm. And, and I think that can be a really helpful uh, process. It, uh, it can, yes. Um, which kind of links straight back to the huge bag of worries, isn't it? And, yes. And, and, and kind of naming the worries. Mm. Um, so what we're kind of alluding to here is self-awareness, awareness of what's going on for you, what's going on for other people, and, and the relationship between that. I wonder if you can tell me a bit more. We talked a little bit uh, before we started recording about the, the little voice inside you. I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. Well, I usually have a sort of revelation about once every couple of months. My latest is that I may not always be right. Now, that sounds odd, but I'm someone with very strong opinions, and I have very a very strong intuitive sense and a very strong moral sense actually but what I've discovered recently and it's partly because a relative of mine had a child who had body dysmorphia which means that she believed that she was hideous and that was a conviction she was actually beautiful but she believed she was hideous and she killed herself and I suddenly thought I wonder if I hold any deeply held beliefs that actually are wrong. And I realised I do. And I often think I've got the answer. Um, this is how it works. I've, I've nailed it, usually about someone else. And it turns out that I'm wildly off-key. Not always, because I think one's intuition and one's heart and all kind of other factors come into play when one's reaching a conclusion about what to do or what's going on but they're not always right I think I have these convictions rather like my daughter of my friend that my intuition is telling me this is wrong this is right maybe it's not any of that yeah. maybe I'm wrong and it happens particularly 
if somebody doesn't ring me back, a friend. This is so common. It's with everyone. You ring, you say, oh, do ring me. Nothing happens. And then you go back over your last conversation and you think, oh, it's because I said uh, I didn't like the scones you made as much as the ones you made before. Or I don't know. You're convinced that that's made them turn against you. Mm. And then when you actually mention it to them, they have no memory of you saying that at all. So your intuition is not always right. So I think the best advice is, am I wrong? Could it be seen any other way? Maybe they were just feeling a bit ill. Maybe their phone was out of order. Maybe it's not all about you. Just relax a bit. So that's been a a great help to me, actually. That's a really helpful kind of coping mechanism. Is that just stopping and asking yourself that question? Am I am I right? Am I wrong? And I'm sure, I think what you're describing is so common. I can certainly relate to it. And I think especially these days where where so much is done over text messages and WhatsApp messages. Yes. Th- those kind of messages are so easy to read something else into, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, you're in a, a, a constant conversation with someone and, and you, you always end the message with a kiss and then one day they don't. And you yes. think, oh, and it might simply be they're in a rush and they've forgotten it, but exactly. in your head you're thinking, oh, that's it, they don't like me anymore, and it just yes. becomes huge, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or three kisses for yeah. a year and then two. Yes. Yeah. Help, what have <laughs> I done? Exactly. They hate me. Yeah. Um, it is this asking this question, and there's a, there's a real kind of exercise in, in self-awareness here and asking myself these questions. You know, what's going on here? Am I right? Yes. And, and, and that, but that... I don't think one need ignore that little voice which says it's your fault you've slipped up you've hurt them you give them a, a seat at the table when you're making your decision but you do take into account experience which is usually look you've been friends for 25 years and logic your brain so give them all equal value but too easily I think we give the emotional or intuitive response the biggest say. Mm. And they're important to take into account, but not to be led by. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really helpful. That's really helpful advice. I think something I'm definitely going to try because I I absolutely do the overthinking, uh, especially around messages. So I'm I'm, I'm totally (laughs) going to do that. When you started working as a, as a music critic, you were 19 years old. Mm. That's quite a, a world to suddenly be thrust into as a, as a 19-year-old. I'm talking to these big hitters like you know, Janis Joplin and the Beatles. Did you get that kind of sense of, oh my goodness, the anxiety then? Oh yes, I've always been anxious, but particularly then because I thought they were stars and I was just some kind of idiot person who got into journalism out of luck, really. And I felt terribly intimidated by them. And they were intimidating. A lot of them were... I mean, Jimi Hendrix came from some street life. I could hardly understand what he said. And a lot of the groups were from the north, and they had real accents in those days. You couldn't decipher what they were saying, and they all had a kind of way of communicating with each other, and I always felt a fish out of water. But what I've only recently, and again, that's one of the good things about being older, 
realized is that actually maybe they were terrified of me. I was right. My intuition was right. There was terror and fear around, but maybe it was their fear and not mine. And I, I never thought about that. Now I'm old. And this is another thing that's really helped me being older. I try to think of people as my children, and it just makes me so much kinder to people. I don't mean I'm patronizing or tell them to look both ways when they cross the road or anything like that, but it, it takes a threat out of them, and you see them as the vulnerable people they and you are. I found that calling people darling helps. It's funny. You just call people darling, and their their ability to terrify you just goes. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah no, no, that's great. That's what we want, all these little tips mm. to help us kind of navigate these these, mm. these kind of anxieties and, and, and feelings we have. We, we had a very brief conversation before we started recording about a hotel I'd been in recently, and uh, when you approached the reception desk, they every person who worked on the reception desk looked up and smiled. And it just makes such a difference, doesn't it? It's something about relationship. Um, and it doesn't it, even have to have to have words sometimes. I think word, the word darling has clearly helped. Um, it, but, but a smile can be just as powerful, can't it? A smile or some, and some kind of touch. Mm. And shaking hands is a brilliant way of doing that. And it's a shame, really, that COVID has rather stopped that habit. Yeah, but yeah. I'm old-fashioned. And the minute I meet someone, my hand goes right out. And I try to look them in the eye. And yep. gosh, it makes a difference. Yeah, it's immediate human connection. Isn't it? mm. It's immediate establishment of some kind of relationship. Mm. And I think when we talk about things like emotional health, people often think of it as being quite a, quite a fluffy thing. But there are some really definite things that can be done, like asking myself the question: Am I right here? Am I wrong? Yes. Here? Like putting a hand out and making a connection. Yes. Um, we talk in our training programs about empathy as being a really powerful yes. way of connecting with someone and, and relationship building. So I think there are definite things you can do. and it, it's There are. And I guess you, you know, part of your role as an agony aunt is kind of helping people to establish that. And the other thing is standing up. It's not so easy for me now, I'm much older, but if you can always stand up when anybody comes into the room, it Gosh, it makes a difference. I said this to a friend of mine. I was staying the weekend, and he always got up, even at breakfast. And I said, you don't have to get up. And he said, oh, I always get up, he said, and particularly for children. I thought, gosh, that's a, that's a very good tip. Mm. So now I get up for children, and I shake their hand, and they are very confused. <laughs> but it's an acknowledgement of them that they're not used to at all of yeah. being actually acknowledged by a strange adult. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't do it to a stranger in a, in a bus, but if I... No, no. But, uh, but if, there's, if there's a need for some kind of human connection, there's... Yeah, because they, they're in a, a very vulnerable position and they don't have a say usually. And, and there I am saying... And what's your name? And yeah. mine's Virginia. I'm, I'm really struck how small things can have a big impact. Small yes. things can become bigger things. And, and that can work in a negative way in the sense that small anxiety can very quickly become yes. something much bigger. But, but my sense is that a small action can also have a very positive effect. It certainly can. Absolutely. Those things are crucial. Yeah. And, 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 and very so, easy to do. 
Absolutely. Perhaps. So paying regard to those small things, mm. whether they're, a, oh gosh, this is a red flag, there's something going on here I might need to think about, or actually I'm going to do something small because I'm going to establish a relationship. Yes. I'm going to put a marker down about how this is going to be positive yes. um, and, and healthy. I think they're, they're, they're really important. I wonder if I can ask you, Virginia, about your book, Janie and Me. So yes, you've written course. about yes. the relationship in that book with your alcoholic mother. I'm wondering how anxiety and the emotional experience of that, how that's affected you, what it, what it was like. I've discovered that most agony aunts and people in the caring profession, so-called, often have a troubled parent. And I think what it does is it makes you very, very intuitive or it can do, not not in every case, because you're always thinking, are they drinking? Are they drunk? Are they going to drink? What can I do? What can I do to make them sober? How can I help them be happy? It's a constant, terrible inner dialogue, which dogs me even now. But that has helped me be an agony aunt. So that's what happened to me. That's the effect that her alcoholism had on me. I have just to say that she was an immensely successful and funny and brilliant woman and lovely in many ways. Yes. Hopeless of being a mother. But otherwise, star. There's lots of scientific um, uh, evidence that, that that kind of experience as a child kind of wires the brain so that when you become an adult, you respond in particular ways or perhaps over respond to a stimulus thinking the same thing's going to happen. Have you had experience of that or...? Oh, yes, um, because I'm always anticipating horror or drama. I think I've become quite good at just being a bit of a peacemaker or I'm always trying to make allowances. Or yeah. And also, if I do feel angry, I feel I, I do bitch about people behind their backs but it's always behind their backs never in person because i just i don't know it's it's a funny relationship that alcoholic one and the worst thing of course with alcoholics is that the alcohol problem that they suffer from gets transferred oddly to you so that they're preoccupied with the bottle and so do you become preoccupied because you're always worrying, where is the drink? Should I pour it down the sink? Should I tell them not to drink? Should I tell my host, can you just give her a very small one, watered down? Your brain gets full of alcohol. Mm. I mean, even if you're not drinking, it's just there all the time. And what I did learn was by going to Al-Anon, which is the sister group of AA, which is the group for alcoholics, that the best way to deal with a real alcoholic after all other things have failed is to detach with love. So you love the person, but you don't love the alcohol, and you let them drink. You don't say don't drink or put your hand over their glass or anything, and you tell them, you say, look, this is your problem. This is nothing to do with me. If you want to go out and get drunk every night, that's fine. I've seen it happen. I did do it to a partner. had an extraordinary effect on him because all the time we'd been together, I was the one doing the worrying about his drinking. Suddenly, no one was doing the worrying. The worry had to go somewhere and it went to him where it should be because 
there was nowhere else for it to go. He started to get nervous about his drinking because I couldn't care less. It's a wonderful dynamic, that. Yeah, there's something very powerful because it's so easy, especially in a in a close relationship with mm. someone, friend or family member, to, to you end up carrying the worry, don't you? It becomes mm. your worry. I wish I'd done it to my mother. Yes. But I, I, it's very difficult. It's easy to say. but These things are often easier to I talk know, about than they are I to know, actually physically I know, go they are. Mm. And So I'm wondering how, you know, in your role as an agony aunt, I'm imagining you're presented with a lot of people's worries. How do you, how do you kind of ensure that doesn't sit too heavily with you? Oh, it never did. I've never, except for the odd letter about child abuse or animal abuse, they did worry me, and they were horrible, but nothing else. Because, again, probably because I'm arrogant, I always could see a solution. And even if I couldn't, which is very rare, I'd say there doesn't seem to be a solution to your problem, and you're not going to accept because you already gathered that they wouldn't accept any advice. What do you think you're going to do? You've either got to live with this or you've got to do something. I can help you, but if you won't take that help, there's nothing I can do. So you have to ask yourself the question, why aren't I accepting help? And that is your answer. Yeah. So again, there's something there about detaching with love. Exactly. There's something Mm. there that that, Mm. that is kind of features in that, mm. yeah. You've obviously been doing that work for a, a while now. Have Has the kind the kind of worries and anxieties that people write to you about, have they remained consistent? Have they changed over the years? I suppose the subjects have changed, but the emotion is always the same. It's guilt, self-hatred, loneliness, fear mainly, and a longing to be loved. Mm. And that's why I think it's so important for children, tiny babies and children to be loved and for their parents or someone to be there all the time and for years to always be there loving them. And it's not that easy. As an organisation, we we run training courses uh, for 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 families, yes. for um, professionals working with children, for adults. And it's based on something we call the nurturing program. It is all about taking a very nurturing approach to yourself yes. and to one another. Yes. So it is absolutely about that, you know, as we've said, making that that connection with someone, shaking their hand, smiling at them and, you know, empathy, showing them empathy and kindness. Yes. But it's also about doing that to yourself. Exactly. And, and that and was the one that often... That's the hardest, isn't it? It's impossible. It is the I've hardest. been trying that for all my life and I still find it, well, it's a mystery to me. It's not how I work, but... I, I, I'm just wondering, is there, has there ever been a time where you think, I did look after myself in that moment well? Occasionally. I mean, I'm not a very good person to talk to because I have always been pretty depressed all my life and even now I've got a very good front but actually I'm the idea of death does not terrify me at all so yeah I haven't been very good at it and that's why I spend I still see a counsellor having seen one ever since I was about 25 I've been in the Priory three times. I suppose that could be a good qualification for giving advice or a, a bad one, I'm not sure. But. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's. I, I think that seeking help 
when you require it is a really healthy yes. thing to do. I, I you know I, I know for myself there are times when life is difficult or when I've hit a patch of poor mental health and sometimes I I think okay I can see what's going on here I need to I need a break or I need to spend time with friends and other times it's actually I need to go and see a professional now because this has yes. gone to the extent where I can't do this no. simply by tweaking I need to get something significant I think there's something very emotionally healthy about saying I need to get some help now and, and going and getting it um, so I think that's apparently, that's actually quite nurturing apparently um, there was a survey done that said 90% of the healing ability of counselling is making the first phone call to the counsellor. Yeah. So forget about all the yeah. talking. It's that seeking help. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And the other thing is to remember that, look, here you and I, pretty successful in our own ways. You know, we're not cases. We're emotional. I don't know about you, but I am. And you've said that you have moments when yeah. you've had to seek help. Yeah. This is the norm. It, it, to, to isolate it as mental health problems, well, we all have, it, it doesn't help really. It's just part of being human. It is part of being human. And that's absolutely what we at the Centre for Emotional Health are trying to get people to, to be aware of and to talk about. Saying actually, mm. you know, managing your emotions is, is a very normal thing to do and, and recognising and when you need help. And not managing them. And not mm. managing them, mm. absolutely, is also mm. a normal place mm. to be. And, mm. and seeking help when you require it and, and talking about it as, as we've been doing today is, is so important. Mm. Which, which brings me straight back to the book. Um, oh, yes. And, and I, I'm really struck by how much of what we've talked about today has, has sent me back to the book in terms of naming the worry, talking about the worry, asking questions about the worry. Whose worry is this? Is it? Yes, exactly. Yes. You know, that's what I mean. It's a, it's a very, it's a beautiful book and it's very kind of straightforward, but there's some real profound stuff in there about the human condition, I think. I think there is. I don't know where it came from. It can't have come from me, but it, it does work. I think you're being very modest. <laughs> I think you're a genius. I'm going to ask if you will indulge me a bit. Mm. Um, I'd love you to read a, a one particular Yes, of course. bit from the book. And it's the bit where the old lady is uh, helping... Jenny, who's struggling with the heavy bag of worries. And to those of you listening, if you've not read or seen The Huge Bag of Worries, please do go and have a look at it. You can buy the book, which would make Virginia very happy. You can also, there are red versions of it on YouTube as well that you yes. can listen to as well. So, Well, this is when Jenny is approached by the old lady, who is about the only person who sees the bag of worries sitting beside her and almost pushing her off the wall. And... The old lady says, can't we open up the bag of worries and see what's in it? And Jenny says, no, 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 it's absolutely terrifying. Nonsense, said the old lady firmly. There's nothing a worry hates more than being seen. If you have any worries, however small, the secret is to let them out slowly, one by one, and show them to someone else. They'll soon go away. Perfect. Thank you. I love that bit so much. It's just, there's so much in that, 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 one, that one paragraph. And then I, the illustrations are so good. The way they, the minute they come out into the air, they, they pop or they, they pop or, scamper off to yeah. their rightful owner. Yeah, and then there's a wonderful minute where she blows a kiss to some of them and they float away. Yeah. Do you still have a bag of worries? Yeah, I think so. Yes. <laughs> but the zip is so tight on it that I can't. I find it very hard to even think about opening them. Yeah. But they're, they're there, yes. Yeah, 
I think mm. that, I think that's a common. Do you experience. have? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do, and I think I'm much better now at opening them and getting them out. Yes. There are still some tucked right in the corner of the bag that yes. I, have, I haven't gone out yet. No. But I think I'm I'm becoming better at pulling them out. Yes, um, good. Uh, and sometimes. I'm the only one who needs to see them, and and that then deals with it. And other times, oh, I need to show someone else. That's a very good point. Um, Sometimes you don't need to show them to other mm, people. Yeah, you just need no, to look at them yourself, no. and that can be mm. that can be sufficient. Virginia, it's been such a joy talking to you. Oh, it's um, been I, lovely talking to you, Peter. If I uh, if I had more time, I'd get you to read the whole book to me because I, <laughs> I could just I would just enjoy that so much. Thank you for sharing so openly so much of your your journey, your life with us, and for sharing your tips. I think that you know that that. that idea of you know getting the worries out asking questions uh, and making sure that you're not carrying someone else's his worries mm-hmm. is really helpful things for some of us we may know those things but it's so easy to forget them i know and just being reminded that actually just checking in with these things is, is a really powerful thing so all of those are going into our emotional toolkit and uh, we're going to so pull them out pleased. when we need them thank so, you so much thank you so much well it's been a treat talking to you thank you good thank you Emotionally Speaking is presented by Peter Leonard. Peter is the Chief Executive of the Centre for Emotional Health and you can find out about their work and training courses by visiting their current website, familylinks.org.uk. Emotionally Speaking is produced by Freya Hellier and Alexandra Quinn and is brought to you by the team at Loftus Media.